0: Napa Why should you get two five-quart jugs of Pennzoil Platinum Full Synthetic Motor Oil? Because at Napa, they're only $24.99 each when you buy two, meaning you get more and save more, which is just sound economics. That's two five-quart jugs of Pennzoil Platinum, only $24.99 each. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. General states pricing. Sales prices do not include applicable state-local taxes or recycling fees. Limit two per customer while supplies last. Offer ends 9-30-19. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs.
1: Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. This is our postseason prep part two, aptly named. I'm your host, James Virgilio, alongside Alan Williams. Alan, how are you feeling? It's been a couple of weeks. We're back. I know some of the podcast fans had posted things on our Twitter page and elsewhere. that were quite humorous about how long this delay was. But here we are to talk yeah, some football.
2: we're back. It's Christmas time. It's a Christmas pod. Merry Christmas to everybody out there. Happy holidays. James, I know you love this time of year. You relish it. Are you, are you enthused about this time of year in Gator
0: football? Honey, I switched the family to Boost Mobile and we got so much more. Like what? Well, we got four free LG Stylo 5 phones, four lines for just $25 per line per month, I smashed up the car, and unlimited gigs. Wait, did you say you smashed up the car? Yes, it's completely smashed. But four free phones... Switch to Boost and get four lines for just $25 per line per month. Four free phones with unlimited gigs, all on our super reliable, super fast nationwide network. Boost Mobile,
2: the switch that gives you more. Terms and conditions apply. New customers only. Visit BoostMobile.com for details.
1: Well, I'm enthused for the Christmas season for Gator (laughs) football. We're going to find out in this episode. Stay tuned. I'm also enthused that even though we have not done a podcast for a couple of weeks, Alan, we do have some new patrons. Yeah, let's go. As always, if you like the content, Drop us a like on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or most importantly, become a patron on Patreon. Big thanks to the large dono from Adam Walters. Welcome aboard, Adam and the medium dono from Donald Hersey. Donald wrote me this really long and cool message talking about how long he's listened to the pod, how he feels like it's the best skater pod by far out of all the other ones.
2: What up, Donald? And
1: uh, Yeah, and his wife encouraged him to give us a little Christmas gift in the form of a dono. Merry so, Christmas. Yeah, thanks again, dono, uh, dono, dono, Donald. Uh, thanks for the, thanks for the dono. I'm going to say as many times as I can, but thanks to your wife as well for the suggestion for the gift, that's fantastic. And of course, still, wire to wire, Alexander Leventhal. The man, the myth, the legend, our top supporter. Maybe in 2019, somebody will dethrone him, but 2018 is his. He's the king. He is the man. Without further ado, Alan, let's jump into the episode. All right.
2: This is going to be a good bit up front here about recruiting. So this is your chance to figure out everything that happened over the last couple of days for the Gators, a little bit national news, and then we're going to jump into the Michigan game after that. So if you're unaware... uh, there's a new early signing day. This is the second year that's happened. It was Wednesday, December 19th. So this is the first day that uh, high school football players can sign their letter of intent. There's a little three-day window that closes down, and then it opens back up again in February at the more traditional signing day. So this isn't the complete class, but we're going to talk about where we're at right now because I think last year about 75% of recruits signed their intent uh, on the early signing day, and I, th- I think they're expecting about 80% to do that this year. So the bulk of guys who are going to sign have done so. Obviously, there's still some guys out there. But we're going to talk about where we're at right now. So as we stand here on Friday, we have the 17th ranked class nationally. Also the 7th in the SEC. That shows you how strong the recruiting in the SEC is. We have 20 commits. There's another guy who's committed um, but isn't signing for great reasons. No players in the top 100. No five stars. We've got 12 four stars. Nine players in the 100 to 300 range. There's two guys right about right above 300. So that's where we're at today. And I think for the purposes of this discussion, as we move forward to like you know the 17th ranked class, that includes guys who are committed but not yet signed. That's for everybody in the top, you know, above us in the top 16. But we're gonna assume for the Gators that. This guy who's going to sign will sign. That affects these kind of rankings and things like that. Um, But James, it's not over yet. But what would represent the bottom tier of success for you after February, the sign day? So as you're looking at where where we are right now, I know you got some feelings about where we're at. But moving forward, what would be successful for you? Can we even get too successful?
1: I don't think we can. Uh, given what I had said all year long, we talked about what the bottom tier of success was for a Florida football program. And I define that as being a tier two recruiting ranking, which for me is to have at least three, but probably four in a class like this year, um, top 100 players. So let's draw the line at three for simplicity, Alan. We have zero. We would have to basically go perfect over the next two months on the regular signing day with the guys we're targeting to accomplish that, that's highly unlikely. That would have been the bottom tier of success. Now, if that seems like a very narrow range of success, it's because it is. I'm looking at the Florida profile saying that really maybe one out of every five years, you could fall out of the top two tiers because you have to sign a small class or you get something wonky going on, or you got to take a lot of offensive linemen or whatever may happen. But this particular class the the second class or the bump class or whatever you want to call this class it would have to slide up there to represent the bottom tier of success i think a tier three class which looks like we're going to be headed for which is going to be a number 10 and number 16 or so finish is is below the expectation when we had talked before the season where do we need to be for me personally we needed to be there we needed to sign more top 100 players so far we still have zero this this essential roster has very few top 100 players on it and so for me that's the bottom tier and again to answer the question directly i don't think alan we can get there so for me this is going to be a failure of a recruiting class and we're going to get into what that means because there are some counterpoints to what my arguments are and and if you're feeling good about recruiting um we're going to talk about why maybe Alan does or doesn't or why I do or don't. But I think the bottom tier for me at Florida has got to be that second tier. And I just don't think we're going to get into that. Yeah, it's tough because at a place like
2: Florida 17th is, is kind of not a disaster, but it's definitely not meeting even the lower end of expectations. Now, again, we're going to say this a million times. This class isn't done yet. There's still work to be. I expect this to move up. If we were below 15, that would be really surprising. You know, there's you can crunch these numbers a million different ways. There's too many various, variables, but I would expect us to be around the around number twelve-ish, give or take like three on either side potentially. I, I will say that there were some good things to like about this class. We signed seven offensive linemen. That's huge, and that's a that's a hitting a really big need on this class. Is we're going to graduate a lot of those guys out this year and next year. Uh, we went after some guys. In the secondary, we're we're still looking at some more guys. I'm expecting some more guys in, to come into the class at that position. We got a quarterback that our, I think our guys really like, and so we hit on a lot of needs um, that this class represents. So, if you look at it, uh, you know, from a certain perspective, it's a, it's a successful class. Like it it fits kind of that Dan Mullen esque. Uh, I don't know repertoire where he's saying, okay, here's what we need to be competitive. I can evaluate these guys and I know how to be successful with them. Now there's still some holes in this class that he wants to fill, but overall, I think the coaching staff probably looks at this class where we are today, knowing they still have some stuff to do and they feel successful about it. I would think Um, now I don't, I'm not in their heads. I don't know. Um, But there were some fears about Dan Mullen coming into UF, that he couldn't recruit at an elite level, does this moment kind of confirm your fears about him?
1: Absolutely. I think if you look at all the top recruiters by their bump class, they've done really well. To, to say that's not the case is to eliminate the data. Uh, and if you look right now, already, you look at Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M killing it with his recruiting class. Uh, you can look at crystal ball who's technically year one, but was on staff at Oregon, killing it with his recruiting class. You can look at Tom Herman at Texas. Uh, you can look at Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma. They're tier two technically right now, but a chance to get to tier one at the end of his recruiting class. You'll get Kirby smart at Georgia last year. Yeah. And yeah, that can, that can pose a lot of okay. Bag men and questions and whatever else and all the things you want to say. But for me, those are excuses. And for a Florida recruiting fan. Now, the only thing you can do to justify our poor level of recruiting is to make excuses. And that might be some hard medicine to take, but that's just the reality. That's just the data. And for me, Mullen is exactly what we feared he would be on the recruiting trail, which is the guy who's going to recruit underrated guys. He's going to tell us that he's got his own system, which we're going to talk about here in a second. And you cannot win, Allen, without a certain percentage of top 100 players. We've looked into this before in the past. You just cannot win a national title, and you especially cannot win. When you have LSU, Texas A&M, Georgia, and Alabama as your main competitors every single year, significantly out-recruiting you with regards to elite talent. Significantly. Georgia is going to have, this is a crazy number, Alan, but 13 times more top 100 players than we're going to have next year. Just do that math in your head. It's 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 almost unfathomable to think that we're going to consistently ever beat a team that has so much more talent than we have. And that's why if you're kind of coddling yourself by saying, well, wait a minute, you get next year. Wait a minute, you get these things. Even next year, we're ranked in the top five right now in recruiting, which is way too early. We don't have a single top 100 player. So it it seems like Mullen's going to consistently get these guys he could have gotten at a lesser school, but you have got to get the guys that are elite. And is it over for Mullen? No. Does it look like he is what we thought he was going to be? Yes. And data would have to change to indicate otherwise. But right now, everything is shaping up to say that he is what we thought he might be with recruiting elite talent. Yeah.
2: If you're talking about a guy who can be an elite recruiter in this second class, I think if you were going to be an elite recruiter, you would have a top level class, a Jimbo Fisher, even guys who aren't, you know, necessarily haven't had the success that Mullen has. If they're an ACE recruiter, they'll be up there. You know, you can look at a Will Muschamp. Now that doesn't mean you actually do anything with those guys. So that's only half of the story. Now, if you take somebody like Nick Samot, obviously he's going to recruit the best guys and he's going to win. So you have to be able to do both. Dan's proven that he can do one half of that is take guys who are, you know, come in and maybe a little lower rated and, and bring them up and and turn them into real players. But you're there's kind of a cap on what you're going to win. Uh, now, I do think there will be some top 100 guys in this class, but... And I think that it is solid. It did meet needs at O line. I didn't mention linebacker. Most of our top guys are at those two positions, which are our biggest positions of need. But really, this class is lacking in star power. Uh, no five stars, obviously. No real high end four stars yet. We could see a couple of those guys again. And so that's what you know. You're looking at the the you know the kind of the headlines on this class. You kind of scroll down a little bit and you're like, you know, there's probably a lot of really good guys that they took. And they took at needs of, at positions of need. I don't look at this class and see a lot of guys who I'm expecting to transfer out. Like some of those McIlwain classes seem like the bottom third where like you can go ahead and punch their ticket to be gone in two years. You know, or you would hope they would be gone in two years because they're probably not going to work out. It doesn't seem like Dan is taking a lot of those guys who are going to be out of here. Now, again, you want there's this thing called like a blue chip ratio. So you want a certain percentage of four and five stars in your program. Now, this nudges us up towards that. We're over 60% blue chip, four and five star guys. Now, no five stars on the roster except for Trevon Grimes, who is a guy we didn't sign. He transferred in. Now, we could look back at this class three years from now. and We could say, Jalen Jones, how's that guy a four star? He's incredible. Or one of the offensive linemen or, you know, polite three-star guy is going to be a first round pick. So there doesn't mean that none of these guys are going to be successful, but you need to pull in some of these top tier guys. These five-star guys usually end up in the NFL unless something goes way, way wrong. Uh, And the recruiting rankings are generally pretty spot on overall in the big data of it. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be successes or failures throughout that. So yeah, kind of what I was worried about with Mullen, can he recruit at an elite level? It does confirm that. Now, can he get into the top 10 and be, you know, five, six, seven? And could you win a national championship? I think you could recruiting at that level if you're an elite talent developer, which he might be. It doesn't mean you're going to be like a, I don't think you're ever going to be an Alabama juggernaut, but you could rise up and win. But Florida, you kind of, not that anyone's ever going to do what Alabama is doing currently, but you want to be at least tilting towards that if you're Florida. Now, if you're another school, that's not within your range. If you're recruiting in the top 10, you'd be like wildly ecstatic and you would never question it. But that's kind of not where Florida's at. And I don't know. I think most fans would hope
1: that we'd be a little bit further along than we are right now. Now, speaking of Mullen and recruiting rankings and how you just said that five stars tend to go to the NFL. Recruiting rankings actually tend to be relatively accurate on the whole. And you've heard us talk before as a listener of this podcast about the sort of the probability theory of recruiting. The more top 100 players you have, the greater likelihood those guys get to the NFL or become significant contributors. You cannot accurately predict every single guy. However, the more of them you have, the more likely it is, right, expectation-wise, expected value-wise, that they will become contributors. So with that being said, Alan, we did take two fairly lower-rated wide receivers. Could have obviously taken other guys. This seems to be a test of Dan Mullen's evaluation skills. How do you feel about us taking these two receivers? sort of beneath what you would expect Florida to do. Yeah, especially at the receiver talent that
2: we've been accumulating recently, whether it's on the transfer market or you know, guys like Cleveland. Florida is full of wide receivers. Now, this isn't a talent-rich year for the state of Florida. That is one thing to think about when you're talking about these types of guys. But these guys have been committed for a long time. At least one of them committed to McElwain, And the coaches seem to really like them. Now, it... It doesn't matter. Ultimately, you know, you can take a guy or two that you like that doesn't match up with the recruiting rankings. But if you're continually like going against that, that calls into a lot of questions. Now, specifically at a position like wide receiver, there's a ton of these guys and they can fall through the cracks. This will be really interesting because they didn't go out and I don't know they even really recruited anybody at the position. And these guys have been re- in there a long time, they could have tried to move them off. Or, you know, kind of silently like, hey, you know, maybe you should look elsewhere. But they seem fairly committed to these guys. These guys were committed to UF. Never really heard about them flaking or the staff going after anybody else. You know, there might take one here if a star comes loose in February. This will be an interesting test, I think, at that specific position. I think that will give you an idea of, you know, that the coaching staff is really relying on their own set of rankings and not, maybe are their own evaluation of talent than what's out there kind of publicly.
1: And Mullen said so in his press conference yesterday, he relies more on his own evaluation than the ranking of recruiting websites. Now, several coaches will say this. I'm going to be harsh on this Alan. When I hear coaches or, or talent evaluators say that to me, that's, that's like one of the most foolish things that you can say. And as a professional investor, I can tell you that when enough information gets out into a marketplace, The information is pretty darn accurate. So if you're the person that's consistently going against the information, you tend to be in a losing position. Recruiting in the 90s was different. You didn't have really good consensus recruiting information. So that would have been a great time to say that. Bill Parcell spending his career doing what the professional talent evaluator said not to do was a great idea because there were like five of them. Right. But what we have now is entirely different. It's a pretty accurate index. You can go back and look for yourself to see what the past 15 years of recruiting rankings have yielded with regards to NFL talent. And there is an absolute drop down in tier significantly with each one. Now, do you have some gems? Yes. So that leads us back to the strategy of meta strategy versus exploitative strategy. And I think, Alan, the meta strategy is to load your team with as many of these high ranking guys as you can that fit your needs. Because you have a better probability of having them play and be significant contributors. And then you do want to use an exploitative strategy to try to uncover a couple of guys that may be diamonds in the rough. That's a fantastic way to build a roster or an investment portfolio. The The problem I have right now is I don't think we're at the stage where we're looking for diamond in the rough guys per yet, but that's pretty secondary. I'm okay with him taking these two guys if he wants to take a flyer on these two, but I really felt like there was a major red flag that went up when he comes out with the classic comment i rely more on my rankings and the recruiting rankings of websites basically saying don't judge me by what everyone else thinks i know better or i can tell and evaluate better i think that tends to be a very difficult position to continually defend and we've seen this time and time again with nfl gms or other college football coaches with all that being said i do think you and i agree alan that dan mullen has proven to be an excellent resource manager And talent developer. Those two things are true. But as we continue to say, he's also going to have to beat other excellent talent developers with more talent. And I think that becomes one of the more tricky things that's going to be on his docket. So we spent a lot of time rather criticizing kind of where we are. But the press was actually pretty glowing for this early signing day. In fact, most sites listed us as a winner of early signing day. Explain that.
2: Well, this kind of takes into effect or into account like what happened on that day particularly. So you could have like a top three class and, you know, no surprises. No one committed to you on that day. And I don't know if you'd be a winner. Maybe you would show up on the list it's, if you make a little bit of a splash. And what got people's attention was that we kind of swept uh, these three undecided prospects all out of the same high school in Lakeland. An offensive guard, a tight end and a defensive end. And these are all like fairly highly rated guys. They they immediately went to the top of our like player rankings. Like these are some of the top guys we took in the class, and you know a tight end which wasn't really a need, but this is a top guy. We needed a defensive end, and the offensive guard. You know maybe we could have lived without him, but these were top guys, and they're all at the same school. And so that got people's attention. I I do think there is some value in talking about this because you you think about recruiting and kind of creating these pipelines or these areas of your state or part of the country where you have guys continually coming in. There's comes a tradition of people going to to there and Lakeland is a really talented area. So I think that's good news that, you know, we're making inroads in particular areas of the state. I don't want to diminish that. Uh, It's funny though, to see us as a winner when we have the 17th ranked class, I don't think that those two things didn't match up, but that's what they're looking at. I, I don't want to diminish either that fact that, it was a big coup for the staff to get all three of those guys on that day. Um, if we had lost out on them, it, we've been looking at a m- even lower ranking coming today. And you've probably seen seen even more of a little bit of panic out there. You would have seen us on a lot of loser lists, uh, certainly. Um, I don't know. James, are you impressed by the them sweeping the Lakeland trio?
1: Yeah, it's impressive, and I think you nailed the narrative there correctly. That that that's the winner of the day, and that's sometimes confusing because people read that as that's the winner of all the recruiting that's gone on so far. No, that's not the case. That's why we're ranked seventeenth. But that particular day, we did well, and that was an important day for us to be seventeenth and not twenty first or twenty second. It was surprising. I know I talked with Ahmad Black, uh, you know, a week and a half ago, and he was he's from Lakeland, played there, and he was saying that he really had no idea where those guys were going to go and the coaching staff was hoping he could be influential, and, and he had no clue. They were very much undecided, and uh, and he was hoping you know maybe at least a couple of them would come. So to get all three of them, I think, was, was fantastic, and that's a great pool. Uh, but again, still, like we said, missing the top stuff, but, Alan, well, well put into perspective with what that means when you're seeing us as winners. Now, looking forward to February. We do expect more additions. What do we need to address?
2: Well, the two big names out there, are are two corners that are both top 100 guys. You know, um, one guy is a five star in some sites. Uh, and I don't like to usually get too specific on names. Like, if we don't get these guys, it's a bust. But now with this early signing period, there's much smaller pool of players who fit the profile of, of what we want. And there's two corners: Chris Steele and Kyer Elam. That's, uh, I think Matt Elam's nephew. If you if that name sounds familiar. These would be huge gets at a big position of need because next year, I'm assuming that both Henderson and Wilson at corner will be gone and we're going to need some top tier talent. We have Trey Dean, but that's not enough. So to get those two guys, they would immediately be the two highest ranked guys in our class. That would be huge. And then the other position is defensive line. We only signed one defensive tackle, who's a pretty good prospect, but we need numbers there overall. And one is certainly not enough could also use some help at defensive end. So if you're looking to see kind of who we're going to be pursuing, look at those two positions, specifically those two corners, but then probably a larger breadth of um, names along the defensive line. I think the staff is hoping to get into a few battles here, like maybe take some guys who are lightly considering Florida, get them on campus, have them really consider Florida. And I think anybody else that we would take would be kind of a random – outlier. As far as positions of need, there's nowhere else. We're not going to take another quarterback. I don't think we'll take another running back. Um, probably not another linebacker. But if somebody who's really highly ranked wants to come, I'm sure they'll find a spot for them. So be on the lookout for corner, maybe a safety, and definitely on the defensive line. If we don't address those needs, that actually becomes a pretty big hole in the roster. Um, now, this, this split national signing day, you can do Kind of both. You can fill up your class and then you can turn all of your attention onto just a few guys to try to sway them. But lots of other people are doing that as well. But the staff did do a good job of filling needs on the first half. That allows them to go after these guys specifically. Uh, So if you don't see any corners or defensive linemen in February, it means that we missed pretty big time. James, let's talk about some national news. Big time name. That we've been talking about a lot this year. Justin Fields, the quarterback at Georgia, freshman, is now transferring. James, does that surprise you?
1: It does not surprise (sighs) me, but I think it might surprise several people out there who just automatically thought that Justin Fields would beat out Jake Fromm. There's a lot of Gator fans who I think really undervalue Jake Fromm. And they're not listening to what the Georgia coaching staff has said and says about how good he has been and is. They continually say that. So it doesn't surprise me. I think that's the nature of what we're in. I don't think Fields did anything wrong. I think that if Fromm couldn't be beat out by the end of this season, you're probably not going to beat him out, I think is the realistic situation. And look, let's face it. Fromm's the only quarterback in the the world, Alan, who can say that he was beating Georgia 99.9% of the minutes he played against them. No one else can say that. So fall in love with anyone else you want. Jake Fromm gets it done. And I think he's very, very smart. He fits their system well. I think that's a big hurdle for Fields to overcome. Now he becomes the biggest carrot on the transfer market. Everyone is going to be going after him. Uh, I guess the question I should ask you, Alan, is should we go after him?
2: I think of course. Of course, of course. You know, We had a little flirtation with him, or maybe he had a little flirtation with us. We went after him. Um, So he does have a little bit of a relationship with Mullen. I haven't seen our name pop up in the places he might consider. It's been Oklahoma, Ohio State, even FSU a little bit. Why he would even consider FSU is crazy. Um, if, you know, old Willie Tagger gets him in the fold, maybe we should give him more of a credit as a recruiter. I, I think we'd be, we, of course we would take him and there's even a small chance that he could play next year. If he kind of submits a hardship waiver along certain lines that maybe the NCAA would not want to fight, but James, okay. So this is an interesting situation. You know, Georgia's, you know, three years in a row took these five-star quarterbacks one after another, two of them are gone you know i don't think feels anything wrong but is it foolish to you know if you're sitting behind a five star guy who is a freshman who went to the national title game to go there and expect you're going to beat him out
1: extremely foolish and we said it when it happened on this very podcast we said there's this this problem with college athletes because everyone tells them they're so good they don't understand that there's real competition on the roster and the places that they are going to they just assume I've been the starter in high school. I've been the starter my whole life. I will be the starter again.
2: Number one recruit. Yeah, you're
1: the guy, right? And then heartbreak sets in. Now, sometimes you're Trevor Lawrence and sometimes you're Justin Fields. I mean, this is a great dichotomy of two different guys. You could take the risk and it could work out, or you could take the risk and it doesn't work out. I think the way Fields is is handling it was seemed particularly maybe a little immature at first. He kind of packed up his bags and left, and now the reporter is he's going to play the bowl game. So I think they got, they got a hold of him and let him know, hey – you can leave, but you probably don't want to make it look like you know, you're know, you a lone ranger. Teams won't like that. I think this is just the reality of being a high school kid. It's a difficult decision. You have to be overconfident in yourself to be a quarterback anyway. It's not always going to work. I do think Justin Fields is very calculated with his decision on where he wants to go, which is why it would shock me if he went to Florida State. I just cannot imagine a guy with his skill set and ability going to a dumpster fire of an offense like that one. One where DeAndre Francois, who it was well-respected early on in his career, basically was a tackling dummy who's leaving. Just get me out of here anywhere else, please. When he would have been the starter again next year, presumably, says a lot about that program. I think Oklahoma looks like a great spot for him to land. I'm sure that's probably where he wants to go at this point in time, looking at what Baker Mayfield's options, looking at how Murray Heisman Trophy winner, NFL options, he was gonna play baseball. That's gotta be, I think, the favorite spot for him to land young coach, guy that gets it, I'm thinking he's probably going to wind up there. It seems to me, Alan, yet again, that Dan Mullen is not very interested in the transfer market guys. And and I think his quote today about his rankings mean more, I, I think he's a system guy through and through. There's benefits to that, but I suppose I'm taking this stance now that I would be surprised if we go after any high-profile transfers during Dan Mullen's tenure. It seems like he's been totally okay not to do that. That could change. We will see. But to me, if we're not going after Justin Fields, Alan, what are we doing?
2: I'm sure. I you know I'd be shocked if we weren't. At least reaching out to him. He just ended up in the transfer portal yesterday or the day before, so it's it's still early, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of momentum there. Who knows? Uh, other news in the QB
1: transfer market: Kelly Bryant ending up at Missouri. Did this surprise you? Yeah, and then what surprised me more is that TCU's quarterback also transferred also to Missouri. There. So it seems that Odom has things going there after being on the super hot seat and then building things up, and now Missouri is a destination for quarterbacks to go to. That's a great pull by Missouri, period. Even though I think Kelly Bryant's limited, to pull a name-brand guy like that who has his experience at Missouri, you've got to feel pretty good about I
2: think it's that. good for Missouri. I don't know if it's good for Kelly Bryant. I think this is another situation where somebody's – Looking for what they want to be and not recognizing who they are. Now Kelly Bryant could prove me wrong. I've been proven wrong before, but I think he's looking at Drew Locke and saying, "I want to play like that guy." And this could be a Justin Fields thing too. Like, I want to be, I want to be a thrower and not an athlete. I want to be a passer. I want to be a real quarterback. I'm sure Kelly Bryant does as well because he wants to play in the NFL, and you're not going to play in the NFL being a glorified running back. But I don't know that he's capable of doing what Drew Locke did at Missouri in that offense. He couldn't do it at Clemson, so I don't know why he would be able to do it at Missouri. Now, to take an athlete of his caliber, if you're Missouri, yeah, you're, you're not going to get any more high-profile recruits than that, and especially as a bridge year after Drew Locke. I know why they took him, and they took the TCU guy as well. But for those guys, I'm not sure it's going to really work out for them. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I underestimated Derek Dooley last year, so maybe I'm still underestimating him. James, the Heisman. We talked about Tua versus Murray. Did it end up surprising you that Murray won and not Tua? Or you know, It kind of seemed like a fait accompli as the day approached.
1: Yeah, we said early on that week that Murray should be the winner. That was our clear statement, but we didn't think the voters would do it because of Baker Mayfield. I'm happy they did. I think he should have been the winner. I think he was the most deserving for all the reasons we said on the podcast. We figured we'd just tie it up because it was interesting that they voted him in. Uh, it, I guess it shows the Heisman voters are, in fact, becoming more person-independent than program Dependent used to be like system guy or guy did this and now he's doing it again. But I think in Kyler's case, they gave him the benefit of the doubt. And in reality, Tua's injuries probably hurt him the most. Right, uh, and, and I'm happy. I got to tell you one thing, Alan. As a big believer in games matter more at the end of the year kind of guy, I'm happy that it went to Murray because he played the best in the biggest moments. And I just I hate it when people give me the argument. Yeah, but Tua played half the games and he lit everyone up. He lit up a bunch of horrible opponents. Who freaking cares? When it matters the most, what did you do, Murray? carried his team into the playoff if for no other reason he deserved it over Tua. So as a nice little parting gift for Murray, I think that was a good decision by the Heisman voters. They don't always make the right one. I thought that was a good one. Certainly all three guys in the room were very deserving. They're very good, but I felt good about it.
2: If you are Kyler Murray and you had the chance here to, I don't know, go to the minor leagues and and try getting into baseball, you've got a big deal and you're going to get paid either way.
1: Or maybe... Stick with football, what would you do? I think you have to I think you have to play football first. If for no other reason then it, it's very hard to find cases, Alan, where guys played baseball first and actually succeeded in the NFL three, four, five years later. It happens. They try it. You can name quarterbacks who have done it. But I think if Kyler really loves baseball, then you just play baseball. You play what you love. But if you're flipping a coin, you're a quarterback, you're gonna have almost certain longevity if things are, are working out for you, and you're gonna get a pretty good contract in baseball. The contract he has will give him some guaranteed money, but nothing like what he may get. Now I'm going to say all this to say one thing. He is way too short for what the NFL wants. So I think the real reason that he's leaning towards baseball is not because he loves it more, but because his height does not affect him from being a potential all-star in baseball. And it almost excludes him from being a quarterback that anybody would take in football and i also tend alan not to think that that guy's skill set fits the nfl anyway so walking back the things i said if kyler murray were 6'3" and more of a prototypical nfl guy i think you'd see him do that and go to baseball later he's not that guy so therefore i think he's going to stick with baseball and make that decision knowing that the odds for him to be a quarterback in the nfl are very long at his size and his style of game
2: it's interesting situation is that you know if he played another position i think he is a talented enough guy that he could do a Deion Sanders kind of Bo Jackson kind of thing where he plays baseball, the baseball season ends. He jumps over. If you're a corner or running back, you can do that. I guess theoretically, if you're talented enough now, you have to be one of the best guys on the planet for people to, you know, actually want you to do that for that to be worthwhile. But yeah, as a quarterback, that's not a possibility. You can't jump in in October and play quarterback. Be really interesting to see how he does. I'm, I'm pulling for him. I hope he's successful in whatever he does. Um, because he's an electric athlete out there in the field. Okay, James, let's turn our attention to Michigan. We're playing them again in a bowl game. Playing them for the third time in a few years here. Kind of familiar opponent. We're playing them at noon. They're ten and two. We're nine and three. They're a six and a half point favorite. James, what's on the line here? How do you how do you feel? I know you're a notorious bowl hater. Anything on the line for either of these two teams?
1: There is absolutely nothing on the line for either of these two teams. As evidenced by the fact that Higdon, the running back from Michigan who got 90% of their carries, is not playing. Rashawn Gary, the all-world defensive lineman, is not playing. And Devin Bush, the all-world linebacker, is not playing. On top of that, both the Florida and Michigan fan bases hate this matchup. I don't know that I can recall a bowl matchup, Alan where both fan bases so dislike it. All you have to do is Google search the reactions to it and both fan bases just hate it. They absolutely hate it. They don't want to be there. The teams don't want to play each other. Several of the current Florida players I know don't want to play Michigan, not because they're afraid of them because it's just, they don't want to do it. It's a bowl game. They'd rather play somebody else. So what's on the line, nothing. You're going to read articles where it means something or, or this, this is something here, but really, Alan, let me take this, this opposite act for Florida. This is sort of like a chance to win 10 games, which is a mythical number. It doesn't really matter. Like quick, think of the last time I won 10 games and did it matter. Um, but it is something. For Michigan, this is a huge downer of a game, which is why I think you're seeing their players go out. Not only did they lose to Ohio State, but they don't even get a tasty matchup with a team that's a little bit more pizzazzy or a team that would mean more if they beat them. This is Harbaugh's fourth season. To end by playing a Florida team that really is not that inspiring is like super letdown mode. So I think that for Michigan, what's on the line is trying to finish out Jim Harbaugh's fourth season with just an obvious win over Florida, which is a dangerous place for them to be. For us, the chance for Mullen to beat a Michigan team that's beat us like a drum multiple times and get 10 wins. So I would say what's on the line probably is 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 more for us in upside and almost no upside for Michigan, which if you look at bowl games, I tend to like to look at it that way. Uh, and that's why I think you see the spread at six and a half in the first place is those three guys being out, not to mention the motivation scenario. But I mean, I have a hard time, Alan really saying like something is on the line. I don't think it matters for recruiting. I don't think it matters for next season. Uh, I just think that's kind of the narrative uh, that we laid out there. Yeah. If you're Florida,
2: I think you get a slight bump in ranking or momentum, I guess, quote that kind of myth mythical program momentum. Maybe it lightly helps on recruiting. I, I think you'll, we'll be higher ranked going into the year. If we win now, a lot of that is meaningless and, you know, history is chock full of teams that look good in the bowl and then crash next season. It doesn't matter at all, but people would have a little higher opinion of us, but I think it's pretty minimal. Like you said, I don't think Michigan loses anything by losing to us or gains anything by beating us. If we lose, whatever, as long as we don't get blown out Macklin style, I think that would be bad if we just look outmanned. But losing the game doesn't really matter. Winning the game would help a little bit. So summing it up, not a lot on the line. But it's a bowl game. We're going to watch it. I wish it was somebody other than Michigan. Or that we hadn't played Michigan a lot recently. If we hadn't played Michigan in 15 years, this would be a fun game. All right, let's look at the Michigan Wolverines themselves. They are coached, of course, by the infamous... Jim Harbaugh, this is his fourth year already. They don't really have an offensive coordinator. They kind of share the duties of that between Harbaugh, Pep Hamilton. Heard they had a great wide receivers coach who was there for a while. So I guess offensive coordinator by committee. Don Brown is an excellent, excellent defensive coordinator. You saw him shred us last year. We'll see that again. They're very attacking style. They blitz a lot. Lots of man-to-man they got 15 returning starters, six on offense, nine on defense. Obviously, that's lessened a little bit by some of these guys not playing. They're eighth in the talent composite. They got four, or five stars. This is a pretty talented team across the roster. I don't know if that even includes Shea Patterson, their quarterback, who is a former five star. So they got a lot of guys in a lot of positions. They're not a team that wows you out on the field on offense, they can be very effective. Um, and so I think that's the thing that's holding them back. That's also why it's not that sexy of a matchup, but James, as you looked at them offensively, what did you pick up?
1: Well, they are a typical Jim Harbaugh team. They run the ball more than 60% of the time. They pass at 38% or so of the time. Their pass plays tend to be off play action, a lot of middle routes, a lot of deep routes. And of course they're relying on deception. Their tight ends catch a ton of balls. Uh, and they're pretty balanced with who gets the ball, which is the kind of traditional Jim Harbaugh offense. And they run a lot of power run, which, as we know, abused us the last time we played when McElwain was coach. So nothing has changed from the last time we played Michigan. They're exactly the same team. This is one of the best offensive teams that Harbaugh has had in Michigan. Uh, and really that he's had in college football against league competition. And it's kind of weird because they have laid some eggs on offense this year, but their overall body of work is pretty solid. They got better as the year went on. Better as the year went on. They're excellent at running the football, and they're a very competent passing team. So when they do throw, they tend to hit you for a bunch of yards. Probably most problematic for us, Alan, is that they do employ two tight ends almost all the time. And as you know from listening to this podcast all year long, that is a formation that has absolutely annihilated us. So if you quickly look at this on paper, you think, this is going to give us a lot of problems, a lot of problems. The best way to combat Michigan's offense is to move your safeties close to the line of scrimmage. And in reality, Alan, it's almost a guessing game of when to blitz and when to play coverage. You've got to mix it up on them because if you get your blitz wrong and they catch you in a power run or a trap, it's a huge, huge run. So you have to get it right. You have to get it right. If you get it wrong, they're going to punish you. And mainly the chance for you to get it right or wrong relies on how well you do at stopping the run on first down.
2: Our safeties haven't ever missed coming up in the run though before, have they?
1: Never. No. This is where we have an excellent matchup is our safeties in this kind of scheme are (laughs) perfect for this. So it does, it does scream out to me, Alan, that we're in trouble with this matchup, even though it's a bowl game, running power is a lot simpler than running a finesse system. You don't have to have as much desire even to run power against a team that struggles with safeties that struggle And oh, by the way, they run a lot of play action, which our safeties tend to struggle with some of that too. So should be a big challenge for our defense. We have a lot of time to prepare. I'm curious to kind of see what we're going to do. But again, expect an aggressive strategy out of us. You cannot afford to sit back and let them run the ball down your throat. Two notable players for them since Higdon's out. uh, Shea Patterson, of course, the quarterback you mentioned, who got much better as the year went on. And then the wide receiver, Donovan People jones uh, who is having a nice year, but probably a, a underwhelming year for a guy of his supposed very talented talent. So they are talented on offense. They have been, you know, like we mentioned, frustrated with a loss uh, to Ohio State. I think, again, they thought would be much closer than it was, especially if they scored as many points as they did. No idea what their motivation looks like, but they are a top 25 offense through and through. They are good. So if you're thinking this Michigan team can't score, you're probably wrong about that. Uh, They are, in fact, a talented and efficient unit. So, yeah, as you watch Michigan on
2: offense, this is going to be something very interesting because this isn't going away. What we put on film against a two tight end set and the difficulty our linebackers having in in coverage and, you know, kind of our, our safeties. All these guys are going to be out there again next year we've got to figure this out. So the fact that we get to prep this over ball practice is probably pretty beneficial for us. And I would like to see some growth. I don't think we're going to magically turn into like awesome at stopping this with our current personnel, but I think it still would be nice to show some improvement and not getting burned by it, by blown coverage assignments or taking bad angles down to the line of scrimmage. So it's something that if you're looking for in terms of just development of our team, that that's something that's out there. Now, Michigan has fielded a really nasty defense over the last few years. Top 10, a lot of categories, very excellent pass defense and elite pass defense in a lot of ways. Solid run defense. They're going to missing a, a couple guys that are key to that. But philosophically, you mentioned they're very aggressive. They blitz a lot. What else are they trying to do to you?
1: Well, I think what Ohio State did against them when you watch the film was really probably the most important thing. A lot of pre-snap motion with a wide receiver, which will force Michigan to sort of reveal what they're in. They're not that tricky, but they will play a lot of single high. And I think one thing that Urban Meyer or maybe you could say Ryan Day did that was brilliant was they forced Michigan to play single high like 80% of the time. And then they just punished them relentlessly. Uh, And I think that's wise. I I was
2: shocked that they were able to do that. I think
1: that will not be lost on Dan Mullen. That basically just by shifting your receiver across the formation nine out of ten times, you can they will just drop into cover one automatically and show you exactly what they're doing. Uh, will not be lost on him. So that'll be key, I think. Secondarily, because they're so aggressive and they blitz so much, the best route concept to run against them is what Ohio State scored. I think four of their touchdowns on, which is a basic mesh route, and you can have any one of your three or four receivers run this route, Allen. But a receiver on the left side. And a receiver on the right side basically cross each other at about 5 to 10 yards, setting a natural pick and a man-to-man D. If you hit it right, it's a touchdown. Because the guy trailing gets a natural pick. He can't catch up. You're done. So Michigan's own worst enemy is sort of their uber-aggressiveness. Few teams are able to take advantage of it like Ohio State did. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that Ohio State was able to block up the middle for at least the initial second and a half, two seconds, which is easier said than done against Michigan. We've had a world of problem doing that when we played them before. So you've got to get the initial protection, even just for a second or two, to have a clean lane to throw those mesh routes. But I would expect us to be able to do that. So you're looking for a lot of quick slants, a lot of mesh, a lot of pre-snap motion. Expect that to happen to dictate what Michigan is in. I don't think Michigan will change what happened against Ohio State. I think they feel like it was fluky, if nothing else. I think on the film, it was anything but fluky. They were really exposed. So it will be interesting, Alan, to see if we're able to execute. This technically would be a horrible Defensive scheme for us to go against. This is everything Felipe Franks does not want. Right, Felipe Guys is not place, man, not doing toss throws, accurate passes. So on paper again, bad matchup for us. This kind of defense is exactly how you should play us. It will be interesting to see what happens in this matchup, uh, both on offense and defense. But there are things on tape that are out there. One guy that may come in this game, we probably think will come in this game, should be Emory Jones. This will be a fascinating game to see what happens to him because I'm sure they will spare him. No, no blitz just because he's young and we'll get to see kind of how he handles the pressure Uh, could be interesting there to see how well he can make decisions up against the onslaught of the Michigan defense.
2: Yeah. There's no reason not to play Emory a lot in this game. You held him out of FSU um, because you wanted to play him in this bowl game. That was the presumably the carrot that was on the end of that stick for a lot of these guys. So I think you'll see a lot of true freshmen in this game because if they have eligibility left, um, yeah, so that could be you know a really interesting wrinkle. If they give him a ton of snaps, That that's going to be something that Michigan, I know, is going to have to prepare for, whether we actually run it or not. That is an advantage that we hold. I don't know that Michigan is really going to struggle with what Emory Jones actually does, but maybe the threat of what he might do could be really helpful f- for us. We're going to have to do a few things like that. I don't think we can just play them straight up. Our offensive line is not capable of manhandling them in the kind of way that you need to. Now, they are going to be missing Rashawn Gary, and if you you watch that Michigan game last year to start the season, the image of Devin Bush running down every ball carrier we had is like seared into your brain. So that is helpful. There's still a bunch of guys, Chase Winovich. They're still a really talented defense. So a real test for this offense for Felipe and the rest of those guys but again, uh, we'll see how motivated they are. I know they want to look; they don't want to look bad against Michigan. Uh, penalties and turnovers. Both teams are heavily penalized. Same turnover margin. Michigan turns it over less and generates more generates fewer turnovers. That's interesting. So not a lot of variance on their end. Uh, both teams are fairly healthy, you know, aside from the players who aren't going to show up. Uh, Chauncey Gardner will be playing in the game. He's announced uh, the only guy who's, I guess, iffy right now, who's a major line item is Kyle Trask. I don't know if he would be in the game at all anyway, uh, but I guess that would be your hope is that if Felipe does go down, he'd be available to play so that you're basically not throwing Emery to the wolves. Okay, James, if we're going to win this game, what are we going to have to do well?
1: We have to stop their running game on early downs. That's absolutely crucial. They cannot get four to five yards on first down. And on the offensive side of the ball, Ohio State did a really good job of being able to run the ball. That was crucial. So as opposed to facing second and nine and 10 and 11, they were facing second and five and six and seven. And when they weren't, they were still able to to catch Michigan in these sort of unfavorable, over-aggressive defensive plays. I think knowing how we call plays, I do think that Dan Mullen will do something McIlwain was not able to do, which is scheme up plays to take advantage of Michigan's extreme aggressiveness so this should be a fun game to watch Dan Mullen's play calling. I think in order for us to win, Allen, we're going to need to steal probably two touchdowns off play calling. And then we're going to have to be able to limit Michigan's run game to probably, this is going to sound weird to say limiting a run game, but probably around 200 yards. I think if they rush for, for, you know, more than 250, 300, it's impossible to beat them. <laughs> yeah. I would so, say so, so 200 is a lot, but I think in, in this case for Michigan, that'd be a solid day for us. If we could hold them to that, they're missing their best running back. So, early rundowns, as well as on offense, being able to, again, play call our way into points.
2: That's going to have to happen. You hit the nail on the head there with the with stopping their running game. Everything that Michigan is going to do is going to be predicated on that. Like You mentioned a lot of play action passing. I, I'm not confident we're going to be able to stop them running the ball. Uh, but if we can, we can, we can unleash some of our pass rushers. Uh, I'm just not super confident we're going to be able to do it. I don't know. On offense, it feels too simplistic to say we got to hit big plays, but this is not going to be a team you're going to be able to methodically move the ball down the field on. Like, we're going to ground out these, you know, 12 play drives where we're picking up third down over and over and over again. They're not going to let us do that. They're going to force us to beat them with a big play or fail. So, we do have some receivers I think that can, you know, make some big plays against them. Grimes, Jefferson, we've seen them at work. I don't. I don't think that it's going to be the receivers that are going to fail us here. I think they can win those matchups. I don't know that we're going to be able to get them the ball. So if you're looking for a number on offense, I would look at sacks that we've taken. Uh, If we're taking under three sacks, I think that's a pretty good number. But this could be a five, six, seven sack game if things go poorly for us. All right, James, let's hear a prediction.
1: You've heard me talk a lot after looking at the film that the matchups are pretty bad for us in this game. And because of that, I think even though Michigan's missing three players and they may even have less motivation than we have, this seems like a, a difficult game for us to win. Uh I think Michigan takes this game. Bowl, bowl games tend to be a little bit higher scoring Allen. So I'm going to say Michigan scores 30 and we score 20. So I like 30, 20 Michigan. Wow.
2: I love when we're in lockstep with this. Unfortunately, we're in lockstep. I was going to say 30, 21 Michigan, just feels like we're not going to be able to slow them down to at the rate that I would like us to. And I don't think we can put up as many points. If we win this game, it's because we busted a ton of big plays and we got some big plays on defense. And they're not the type of team that you just expect that to happen against. They're, they're too well coached. They're too efficient. Now, obviously Ohio state showed you can bust them with big plays, but I don't think we're capable of doing that on a consistent basis. Like Ohio state did. So, Unfortunately, it's probably lost. But a 30-21 loss is not the end of the world in a bowl game. That doesn't matter that much. So I'll enjoy watching it, hopefully, if I don't get too frustrated. Um, but knowing that there's not that much on the line, that's, that's every bowl. We're gonna about to run through a bunch of bowls here, James. Not a lot on the line for most of them. We did the first half of the bowl games. And guess what? There's still a ton left. So if you enjoy watching some football here this Christmas season, You're in luck. James, are you ready for the next round of bowls?
1: I'm so ready for this. I had such a fun time last time reading off the bowls and guessing where they were. And the Frisco Bowl, as we learned, was not in San Francisco, but it's in Frisco, Texas. It should be in San Francisco. I look forward to more fun. Alan, start us off. There's a couple of bowls that are happening right now as we're doing the podcast on Friday, and there's more that are happening tomorrow and the next day. But we're going to start with the ones we didn't cover on our previous pod. So here we go.
2: All right. One of my favorites, the Serve Pro First Responder Bowl. Scintillating matchup: BC versus Boise State. Boise State's favored by two.
1: You got to take Boise State in this matchup, even though they're a stalwart, because I think it means more to them. Or does it? I don't know. It means a lot to BC too. I think this is actually a good bowl matchup. I think both yeah, teams care. i watch it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take, uh, I'm gonna take Boise State in this matchup. I'll take Boise State with a win over the dudes from BC. Uh, feels like they have magic
2: in a lot of these bowls. Even you know Peterson's not there anymore, but it's hard to pick against them. They're too fun. All right, the quick lane bowl, Minnesota versus Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech favored by five and a half. That seems a
1: little high. They had a sneaky, decent season, but I'm going to go Minnesota here. They've had a lot of time to prepare for Georgia Tech, which I think is one of the keys to playing them. Agreed, agreed.
2: Uh, I, You know, Minnesota is continually intriguing to me. I don't know if they're ever going to really put it together, but they got that hipster young coach. Maybe something will start here. The Cheez-It Bowl. Get ready. Cal, minus
1: one versus TCU. Mm, I really do like cheez That's <laughs> what I think of when I hear this bowl. Indeed. And I think TCU is in a little bit of a, I want this season to be over mode, and Cal's not. Someone, I'm going to take Cal.
2: Yeah, Cal's had a really nice season. They, they've totally flipped their identity from all offense, no defense, to having a really nice defense. I think that'll show up. I think that will travel. I'll take them as well. The Walk-Ons Independence Bowl. Does this mean it's only being played by Walk-Ons? I'm not sure. Temple minus three and a half. First Duke Temple hired a new coach, Manny Diaz, away from Miami. Did you like that hire, by the way?
1: I don't know how to feel. How I feel about that hire, like, he's intriguing to he, me. He, I think, I think if you're Temple. It's got some sizzle and some flash. And so probably you like, I don't hate it. I, I just, I don't know about it. I mean, can you really hate what Temple hire? No. Temple had a nice little, you know. They've they, had a nice run. Like Jeff Collins, of, yeah, you they, know. Yeah, they've done a nice little run. So I think for them, no, you know, not bad. I, I think Duke wins this game though.
2: I like Duke here as well. It's hard when you're in kind of transition mode and, and Duke is not. They've had Cluck Cliff there forever. And I guess he'll be there till the world explodes. The new era pinstripe bowl, Miami minus three versus Wisconsin.
1: This is a bowl of like shattered dreams, right? <laughs> Miami had high expectations. Wisconsin was yeah, on very so high. many people's playoff lists. This feels like a game where Wisconsin will will be happier to be at than Miami. I'm going to take Wisconsin.
2: Yeah, this you know Wisconsin, they're out of the snow. They're reveling. They're enjoying it. Miami's like whatever. Give me the team that's not whatever. Academy Sports Plus, outdoors, Texas Bowl. That was great. Baylor, B- Baylor, Baylor versus Vandy, or Baylor versus Vandy, whatever you'd like there. Vandy minus four.
1: I love the name of this bowl. When I typed yeah. it out on the sheet, I, I just love that they actually used the plus sign. That's plus. the official name, Plus Outdoors Texas Bowl. Uh, Baylor's a home, presumably. Vandy had a nice little season. So did Baylor. I'm going to take Vandy.
2: Yeah, Baylor feels like they're still too far away, although they're probably pretty amped to be in a bowl considering the depths that they had fallen to a couple years ago. But Vanity doesn't make it all these either. I'm sure they're going to want to take advantage of it. A nice bowl where both teams probably care about it. Franklin American Mortgage Music City Bowl. Did you make that one up? Uh, Purdue versus Auburn. Auburn minus four. Man, Auburn in the Mortgage Music City Bowl. That yeah, sucks.
1: It's, it's tough. Hopefully, you guys are having as much fun listening to this as we are. We will get to the playoff games and there will be real analysis, but this is too good to pass up. Purdue has all the motivation here. I'm going to go with the motivation theory. I'm going to say Purdue.
2: Yeah, they're a funky team to play as they've shown. I I mean, Auburn talent-wise should whip them, but that's usually not what happens. Camping World Bowl, West Virginia versus Syracuse, even no Will Greer in this game.
1: Yeah, I can't believe it's even. I feel like back the train up and back Syracuse on this one.
2: Okay, I'm with you. I don't know if I'm backing up any trucks, but that's what I'm picking. Valero, Alamo Bowl, Iowa State, the Clones versus Washington State, minus three and a half.
1: Intriguing a matchup here. Yeah. I think Washington State actually has a lot of motivation. I think they feel like they need to prove that their season was not a fluke, that that loss in the snow was sort of an anomaly. So I actually think this is one of the major teams that's a little upset and wants to go out and end on a high note. So I like Washington State here.
2: I like that theory. I'll, I'll go with you. Uh, although I do think Iowa State's going to come to play. This should be that's a pretty nice matchup. Belk Bowl. Are you ready? Belk Bowl. South Carolina minus six versus UVA.
1: All I think of are the silly Jim McElwain commercials that were on when he was yes. coach here. And I think yes. the bill bowl and it makes me want to vomit. Also a terrible matchup of ugh. boringness. I can't even, Ugh. <laughs> I guess I'll take South Carolina.
2: Ah, Give me UVA. Wahoo. All right. The Nova home loans, Arizona bowl. Scintillating matchup. High-profile teams, a lot of stakes. Arkansas State minus one versus Nevada.
1: Arkansas State was the team I picked before the year in one of my pools where you had to like use wins and losses to allocate, and they underachieved this year. They were a lot of how dare they? Yeah, they were a lot of people's favorites to win ten or eleven games. They did not. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about Nevada, but because I am mad at Arkansas State, I'm going to pick Nevada.
2: Okay, that's good enough for me. Military Bowl, Cincinnati minus five and a half versus Virginia Tech.
1: Virginia Tech with a really disappointing and wonky year. Yeah, very. From the beginning, it seemed like it was doomed. Second year, yeah. Very interesting. I'll take Cincy here.
2: I want to take Virginia Tech, but they've disappointed over and over again, except for beating Florida State, so thank you for that. Yeah, Cincy, why not?
1: Why not? The Hyundai Sun Bowl, Stanford minus six versus Pitt.
2: Can you ever accurately predict what Pitt is going to do? I say no. But I'll take Stanford here.
1: Yeah, definitely Stanford. Red Box, which I hardly even know how that's still a thing. But the Red Box Bowl, Michigan State versus Oregon. Oregon minus two and a half.
2: Oregon feels like they're moving forward here. I I think some of the, you know, recruiting momentum. I think Cristobal is going to have them going. I think that's, this is a bad matchup for Michigan State. So I'll take Oregon here. Although, this is one of those things in Michigan State. If they if they find a way to lock you down, they will lock you down. So, this could be like a 10 6 kind of game, but I don't think so. I think Oregon's going to be able to move the ball.
1: Yeah, Michigan State just cannot score at all. It's hard to pick them for anything, so I like Oregon there. Auto zone Liberty Bowl, Missouri minus nine and a half versus Oklahoma State.
2: That line is really high for both teams that are going to score a lot of points. That's too much, too many points for me. i have to take Oklahoma State.
1: Yeah, I love Oklahoma State here, especially what they played at the end of the year. They're a feisty team. I think that that is a, a seemingly absurd line, especially given that Drew Locke is. What's his interest in this game, really? I don't know. Nothing? Don't get hurt. Zero? So, I don't know. San Diego County, Credit Union, Holiday Bowl. Northwestern, coming fresh off of their major you know, prolific moment as a football school, getting a matchup against Utah. Not another bad matchup there. Utah favored by seven and a half.
2: This is a a weird scenario here because it feels like Utah would be the type of team that would really handle Northwestern well. But... I don't know. There's something Northwestern's a little spunky. I, I think I'll take them giving up 7.5.
1: I like that, too, with the points I'm taking Northwestern. Tax Slayer Gator Bowl, right here in the great state of Florida. NC State versus Texas A&M. Jimbo Fisher, homecoming. Minus 7. Yeah, did he, Jimbo. Good fighting Jimbo.
2: You know, A&M feels like the arrow is pointing up. That doesn't seem like too many points against a team like NC State. Where I, I don't know. A&M just feels like they're a little more battle-tested, so not that that means anything in a bowl game but if i'm having to pick a side here i guess i'll go for that.
1: I like A&M here. Outback Bowl, Mississippi State -7 against Iowa.
2: I don't is Iowa going to score any points against if if the Mississippi State defense decides they want to show up, they're going to grind Iowa to a
1: So give me the Bulldogs. Yeah, I love this line. I think Mississippi State got better and better as the year went on. And I think they want to end on a high note. And I think Joe Moorhead is is amped to continue the momentum here. So this one I would say they have a lot of Mo. I like the matchup. I like Mississippi State. PlayStation Fiesta Bowl. LSU minus 7.5. Only 7.5 against the defending national champions, (laughs) UCF
2: we we should actually talk about the UCF let, let let's save that here for you know, for a second the the scheduling shenanigans that were going on this week let's talk about the game here i would like to see LSU put it on UCF i don't want to see a repeat is LSU motivated enough by the like sh- UCF's like shenanigans and the fact that they want to be like we don't want to lose to these guys and just be another reason that they're crowing down there in central Florida. I think enough so that the answer is yes. Auburn almost beat them last year. That was a close game, and I don't think Auburn necessarily cared at all, not nearly as much as UCF did. So maybe that LSU's talent wins the day here.
1: Yeah, I think Dave Arnada has had enough of UCF. And I think that is a problem, and I have been on purpose, just in case you're, you're you're wondering. You're giving me a smug look, but that's a callback. We do callbacks on yes, these shows. I know, I love it. Uh, and so, if you're if you're a really savvy listener, you'll pick up on some of these name callbacks when I pronounce someone's name incorrectly. But I do think that LSU cares about this game. I think the college football players have had enough of UCF. I think LSU is very talented. I think their defense will really want to come out and make a statement here. And I think. They play the right kind of defense to mess with UCF, so and I like I like LSU minus seven and a half. They should absolutely be able to score on UCF's defense. I think that's a, a favorable line for LSU.
2: And no, McKinsey Melton for UCF.
1: So worst case scenario for LSU should they lose, it just looks real bad. The VRBO Citrus Bowl, Kentucky versus Penn State. Penn State favored by six and a half. This is interesting.
2: Uh, this is you know Kentucky's not normally in this high profile of a bowl game. You know, again, the defense does the defense travel to this game or do they show up? If they do, it's going to be pretty tight.
1: Um, That number six and a half is good enough for me. I'll take Penn State. I think Kentucky may be making a lot of business decisions with their players. Yeah. Maybe don't want to go quite as hard. With that being said, I think Kentucky really wants this one. I'm going to say that they stay within a wonky Penn State team. Rose Bowl. I like the Rose Bowl, by the way. It's just, just the Rose, the Rose Bowl. Bowl. Thank you, Rose it's Bowl. Beautiful. I appreciate that. It's wonderful. Washington versus Ohio State, minus six and a half for Ohio State.
2: I think the coaching staff, having made this transition, you know the fact they've been there, but they they want to show that they're going to be the guys moving forward. There's still some stuff at stake for them, recruiting wise. So I think Ohio State will show up in this game. It still is the Rose Bowl, so. Give me Ohio State here. That, that Again, that number six and a half is tantalizing to me. It doesn't feel too big against Washington, who I think will have trouble scoring.
1: Yeah, I like Ohio State. I think Washington just didn't really have it all together this year. No, they
2: probably shouldn't have been in this game. They, they shouldn't have beaten
1: Washington State. Shouldn't have been. So I like Ohio State here. The All-State Sugar Bowl, at least that's a consistent one. Texas versus Georgia. Georgia favored by 13 in this matchup.
2: That's too much for a game like this where there's not much on the line. So I do think Georgia
1: will win the game, but give me Texas here. Trying to figure out Georgia's motivation. Texas has a lot of motivation here. They want to prove they can play with the SEC. It's a big Certainly. recruiting moment for him. Georgia, I think, I don't know what this matters to them. I mean, beating Texas is nice. They're another big traditional program and a recruiting opponent. So it does, something does matter here. I like the matchup. It's intriguing. 13 seems kind of big yeah. in Georgia's season. And Texas, I think, does have an ability to move the ball. Georgia's defense is not really you know, all that great as we've covered. I'll like. i take Texas here minus the 13. I'll take that. Let's move to the playoffs now, the games that matter. Notre Dame taking on Clemson. And as the Final Four committee bestowed upon us a wonderful matchup where Clemson is favored by 13. 13. We just ran through, what, 50 million bowl games? And how many of them have a spread of 13 or larger, Alan? Zero. Georgia, the only one there. So thank you, committee. This is great. Okay, Clemson, Notre Dame, what do you like? The
2: 13 is... Is the only thing that gives me pause. and There's no way I would pick Notre Dame in this game, even with a freshman quarterback on Clemson's ledger. Feels like this is the type of game that Clemson could squeeze them a little bit, and it would get away from Notre Dame late. So I'm inclined to take Clemson here, although I don't feel comfortable enough that I would like put any weight on it because of that 13 points. spread. If you're just betting the money line, I would certainly take Clemson.
1: Yeah, Clemson playing really well towards the end of the year. You have to factor in some freshman nerves in this game, but then again, Ian Book doesn't have any experience either. I think this line is almost entirely built upon the level of athlete on Clemson's defense versus the level of athlete on Notre Dame's offense. That's where it's coming from. And I think that defense is going to win the day in this matchup here. I like Clemson to cover that spread. Oklahoma versus Bama. I'm not that excited about the Notre Dame game. I got to tell you, though, Alan, I am actually very excited about this Oklahoma-Bama matchup. Bama's favored by 14. What are your thoughts on this one?
2: That's a lot of respect for Bama, especially given Tua's iffiness. Now, all indications are he's going to play. There's been some video of him moving around. I mean, Oklahoma's going to put up points i think bama will certainly put up a lot of points but if they're not clicking oklahoma is certainly going to score 14 is a lot but man can you really pick against bama going up against this kind of oklahoma team who will not put up much of a stand at all on defense
1: i don't think you can and i think that's why you've got to take bama on the points this game, as soon as it gets to be two or three scores, Oklahoma is going to have a lot of pressure, I think, on them. It's a playoff game. Keep, them, keep that in mind. These spreads are important to factor into a playoff game. Caution will be thrown to the wind, and they will attempt to get themselves back in the game. Right. I think that's the main reason why I like this 14-point Bama spread, and I also think Bama can run the ball every single play if they wanted. If Hurts came in, they would score almost every time anyway. So I think that they're safe for this matchup. Against Clemson, they couldn't do that, which would be more intriguing. I think they can hear either way. I'm really excited to see the Achilles heel of Bama has been running quarterbacks, super athletic guys that can throw. I'm very excited to see how Kyler Murray does on this stage. I think he's worthy of it. I think it should be an extremely fun game. I mean, that is kind of the traditional Heisman winner curse. Like they
2: don't always perform well in the bowl game, get a little heavy on the banquet circuit there. So I don't know if Kyler Murray is going to be, you know, at tip top condition, but as you said, this is a playoff game. It's crazy that these spreads are so high. Shows the amount of respect for Clemson and Bama. We're just headed toward Clemson-Bama. Was this the 14th year in a row that they played? Anyway, so some fun playoff games, certainly on the Bama side. Let me go back to this UCF-UF scheduling thing, James, before we close, and we'll talk a little Gator b-ball here in a minute. It kind of came out that Scott Strickland offered a two-for-one, like two games at UF, one game at UCF, similar to the – I mean, I guess exactly the same as the deal that USF took. Uh, UCF thinks that they're above that and and turned it down.
1: Mistake by UCF or mistake by us
2: to even offer it?
1: Maybe a mistake by us to offer it because you don't gain anything. If you do it, it looks like you're conceding to UCF. Uh, I I think – I'm under between the lines here, Alan – I bet there was a discussion between Dan Mullen and Strickland where Dan Mullen's like, I want to play these guys. You know, I'm recruiting against them. So I'm sick of this crap. I want to play them. And so you offer them the standard move. And then I think I will say something positive about UCF. I think UCF is extremely wise to do what they're doing here. This is all posturing. It's just all posturing. They should take the deal and play because it benefits them as a program, but it makes them look more set aside that they are equal and we are not going to take your your little peasant offer to us down here. <laughs> Uh, And I think that's potentially a lot of posturing by both the coach and the program to continue to brand themselves a certain way. Now, all of that's going to come crashing down upon themselves as soon as this team is not as good. I say it's smart because you might as well strike while the iron's hot. And right now you've got an image where you haven't lost yet. So cash in as high as you can. You can probably get the two for one deal with Florida anytime you want. And I think that's what they know, is they could call back a year from now and get that deal in 2022 and 2023 and 2024, and that's not a problem. Maybe, I think they probably could. I think they probably could, or they could get it with a different SEC team. I think that's possible. Uh, I think they're shooting for like a Hail Mary home run deal, which they're not going to get. Nobody is going to play a non-Power 5 team equally. Home, and home. There's just no way. There's no reason why you would do that. Um, and I don't think we're going to do it. I don't think we look bad by offering it. But I bet if we could do it all over again, we wouldn't offer it.
2: Yeah, the way they responded, you know, definitely made us look like, I don't know, not bad, but it definitely wasn't, like, favorable for us. I do think there is something to be said for, like, Striking While the Iron's Hot, ha- like, you, like you said. It does make them seem a little delusional, though.
1: Oh, they are, but that's their brand, right? Their brand, their brand is delusional? Their brand is we're delusional national champions until you give us a game to prove otherwise. Yeah. That's the shtick.
2: But here's the thing, though. if I guess what they're holding out for is just that they can maintain this reputation until potentially the big 12 expands. But to make yourself a real viable candidate for that, if you went on the road and, and beat a team like UF, that would enhance your brand. I, I don't know. I, I see what they're doing. You're right. It is all posturing, but they like to say like, no one will schedule us. No one will schedule us. Well, cause you're a freaking, uh, group of five team and it's not about like just like we don't want to play you because we're scared the money doesn't add up they have a forty thousand person seat stadium we're not going to get the same kind of return on our investment that we would having a home game like paying someone to come to the swamp so yeah they're they're posturing but i guess i'll allow it although i said as i said frequently I'm, i'm i'm over them i hope lsu pounds them and maybe they just takes a little bit of wind out of their sails. but Probably not much, since they live in the land of delusion. Okay, James, before we close, a little Gator Basketball. Uh, since we last talked, uh, we've not looked great, especially on offense. Uh, are you – I know you're disappointed this season. Are you uh, – Hitting the panic button? Are you hovering over the panic button? Are you far away from the panic button?
1: I am pressing the panic button. You're pressing it. I'm pressing it. So we have a great recruiting class coming in. This will be a short thought, by the way, if you're thinking, hey, how much longer will this podcast go today? Just a couple of minutes. But I've come to the point where I've watched enough Mike White offense to say we don't have an offense. And if you're a basketball fan... And you're watching us play. We don't run sets. We don't know what we're doing. We've now somehow alienated another really great scorer in Jalen Hudson, which I don't know how that's possible, but we've done it. We look lost out there. And it's hard at this point in time not to pin that on the coaching philosophy that we have. The flip side of this coin is recruiting will buy you time. And having the stud recruits we have coming in next year, the play of Nimbart, which has been very good, will buy you another year. There is a narrative out there where we just don't have the right guys. They're not buying into the system, and Mike White's sort of pushing them out because he knows next year is coming. I just see a very incoherent offense on, on the court that is hard, hard to explain, Alan, with anything other than maybe we just really don't know how to coach offense. And maybe Mike White has relied upon this wide-open, free-flowing system that worked when he had better athletes at an inferior school, and it is not working against teams that have equal athletes. We are a struggle bus on the offensive end against just about everybody. And there's just not a lot of organization.
2: You know, it's hard because we're playing a guy like Kavarius Hayes, who should be your seventh man, eighth man, energy guy off the bench. And we can't really do anything well. We can't play inside out. We can't play outside in. You know, I, I think we under underestimated how much Igor Kulichov did for us last year that he credibly played the four as a basically like a, not even that big of a small forward. And he could rebound and defend credibly there. And that allowed us to have a little bit more scoring punch when we were knocking down shots. The fact that the guys who should be scoring a ton of points for us, Kayvon Allen and Jalen Hudson are basically not playing or not playing well in Allen's case is really limiting. Cause we're, that was the thread that was going to, you know, the line of thinking that said this team could be competitive because you are you are playing a freshman point guard. You're playing a ton of minutes to three different freshmen. Now, obviously, teams have shown that they can do that and win if you're at the level of Duke or Kentucky, but we're not. But next year, this could be a really fun team next year. We'll see. I'm willing to give us a pass in this kind of weird, wonky year, but I do want to see the team get better offensively. I do want to see some... Us begin to figure it out we got a lot of young guys and if we start to get better that'll be encouraging once we hit sec play but right
1: now it's not looking good and it is frustrating to watch this team yeah it's, it's not been entertaining and it's hard to see it changing i think justin predicted we'd make the NCAA tournament and probably lose in the first round which is not a bad prediction that's still possible i think that's correct of where the team is but for me it seems like we are not going to make the tournament this year. That would almost be an impossibility given the way that we're playing unless yeah. a, a miracle seemingly happens in SEC play. But the SEC will be tough this year. The,
2: well, that you know, c- cuts both ways there. It'll, it'll be difficult to pick up wins, but the wins we do pick up will mean something on our ledger. We don't have a signature win yet. We could pick up some of those along SEC play. The team will defend. I'll give them credit for that. So there, there is a chance um, if these freshmen develop. Uh, Really, i just like us to look better and be a little more fun to watch. So, Mike White, if you're listening, get on that, I guess. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed all the bowl coverage. We're going to come back to you sometime early in the new year. We'll talk about the Michigan game. We'll look ahead to the spring and get you ready for all that's going to happen there. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon. Go Gators.